I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Nyunyunyi people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. When you entertain at home, you've got friends around and you cook dinner and you put out a wine, and you might change your plan. You might have decided, I'm going to have this wine followed by that wine followed by that wine, but then the conversation or the body language, all of that, and you just go and grab something else from the cellar and put it in front of people because it feels, feels like the right wine for the moment. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Jim Chatto is a name synonymous with experienced winemaking in Australia, group winemaker at McWilliams Wine for over eight years, and keeper of more than just one Winemaker of the Year award. Jim and his wife Daisy now lodge in Tasmania's Huon Valley. Their label Chateau has swiftly evolved into some of the most talked about Pinot Noir in this country. Hi Jim, thanks for joining me. Hi Shante, how are you? I'm so good and I'm stoked to have you on the pod. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It it also gets me out of the vineyard. I've been uh, leaf plucking and it's hot and uh, sulfury in the vineyard this morning, so... Happy to be out of it. <laughs> Good to get out of the sun for a little bit. I hope you're wearing your sun cream. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am, mum. <laughs> Look, with over 30 years winemaking experience and your vast accomplishments, a modest little sum like me could be quite intimidated, but luckily I know you're a really nice guy. How are you down in Tasney and what's happening there today in the Huon? Um, oh, we're, we're great. We, we um, moved back to Tasmania just over five years ago now. So and we've been living on our vineyard that we planted about 15 years ago. Um, so life's great down here and, um, you know, fortunately we've been, I guess, if you like, blessed with, um, rel- in relative terms with the, the COVID situation. It's been pretty, up until recently, been pretty free and easy down in Tasmania as the borders were shut. In the vineyard where um, it's, been a, it's been a tough year in the sense that lots and lots of rain in spring meant, and, and then being warm now, everything's gone like the clappers. So it's been lots and lots of work in the vineyard. Um, shoot thinning, um, wire lifting, um, now now just into finishing off leaf plucking and then I start dropping fruit. So, you know, lots of podcasts for me. Yeah, so I suppose just with all of that rain, you're just trying to combat any kind of mould or any kind of mustiness in the vineyard and, and leaf plucking just to kind of um, thin out a little bit? Yeah, like for two reasons, to get to get um, airflow and sunlight into the crop. I mean, we're down at 43 degrees south, so we've got to maximise everything. So we tend to take off, in the fruit zone, we tend to take off all the leaves on the morning side, which is the eastern side, and but we leave all the leaves on the western side because that afternoon sun tends to bake the fruit and drives the acid out, and we want to keep that freshness and acidity in the fruit. So just the mornings, the gentle sun, if you like, we're trying to promote that, but it also opens up the canopy just for a bit more airflow which reduces um, the risk of, of fungal disease. Yeah, perfect. I want to talk quite a lot about your label Chateau, but for everybody that, well, doesn't know you, and I know you've had such an incredible history, can you talk a little, a little bit about how you got your start in winemaking, kind of where you cut your teeth, moving you down before you get to the Huon, just to give us all a little bit of the backstory? Yeah, of course. Well, um, I guess accidentally I got into the wine industry Um Going through, I grew up. I grew up in a restaurant family. So, um, Dad's a chef. Mum and Dad ran restaurants in Canberra when I was growing up. So we always worked in the restaurants as kids. Um, but I wanted to be a photographer, and I even went to a, a college out of zone for me growing up, just so that I could do photography. And um, turned out I well, 
I'm pretty hard on myself, but I probably I wasn't as good as I would have liked to have been. And so I sort of changed my mind and um, ended up dropping out of school. And that meant in our family working in the restaurant. So I started an apprenticeship with my dad in the kitchen. Um, within about seven, six or seven months thereabouts, he'd sacked me half a dozen times. I'd quit half a dozen times and I went, I'll stuff this. Um, I don't like this working caper. Um, I might go back to school. So I went back and, and did a, um, a year 13, if you like, which is a combination of year 11 and 12 um, and had a really good school counsellor at the time that just sort of picked my brains about what I was interested in, what I was good at and sort of kept coming back to this science but art leaning and um, you know I'd met I'd been lucky enough through dad to meet some winemakers along the way and they were always they seemed to be around the lunch table at one of dad's restaurants always I guess the most interesting people they were always laughing telling a joke and I just thought these guys have got such a great life but you know I didn't think it was a possible career I assumed that to get into wine you really had to be born to it you had to be part of a, a wine dynasty or something like that so you know the the counselor I had Graham made a few phone calls it was before internet back then and managed to find an open day at Charleston University and I went along and I met sort of the the previous year's first year students and we had a barbecue and they were just so interesting and so accommodating and I just sort of got the bug from there and rolled in university wow that's so fantastic. I love hearing. So, so, so if, I, if, I, if I help photographer and chef, <laughs> makes, a good, makes a good winemaker perhaps. I feel like you're a bit of a perfectionist anyway. So you say that you probably weren't that good at photography. Do you think if you kept at it, perhaps you would have learned the skills that you particularly wanted to, to learn and maybe you would have been an amazing photographer? Oh, look, look the skills weren't the issue. Um, I'm, I'm very, I guess, I've always been quite determined and, and quite stubborn about what I want to do. Um, and so I would have worked. I would have worked that all out. But I think in something like photography, you really need an eye, the eye for it. And I just, you know, I just didn't quite have that. And I had some friends that really did, and I could see that. And so I got good marks in photography, um, but I just yeah, couldn't couldn't quite see the picture, if you like. And um, you know, that's so important in in an artistic endeavour like that. And so I decided no. It's not for me. And it's really funny, actually, only this week, talking about this, um, some family friends, one of their daughters is studying photography. Um, she's in year 10 and she's really interested in getting back into the old SLR cameras, film cameras, that sort of thing. And they reached out to me to see if I had my old camera and I managed to dig it up. And, um, yeah, it was one of those moments I had to pause and sit down with this camera and just reflect on what may have been if I'd chosen that path. And, you know, I bought that camera. It's it's a Pentax KX from the early 70s. I bought that um, in 1989 with a view to be a photographer. And, you know, now I'm able to pass it on to somebody that might be able to use it now and might make a career of it. But it was one of those moments of, you know, perhaps a sliding door moment. I sat down and just reflected on when I bought that and what my hopes and aspirations were back then. And um, they couldn't be more far removed from where they are today, you know. Oh, I bet that camera's hot, hot now for her, so that's really lovely to hear. <laughs> I don't know. I well, I, well, my, my, da- my daughter spotted me with the camera and she, she covers all things retro um, and steampunky, so she doesn't want me to give it away. So. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got people fighting over it. <laughs> so you've been to Charles Sturt University. What was the next step? Um, well, I, I sort of applied right around the country, but what, I sort of stepped out of Charles Sturt full-time into a correspondence um, studies. And what um, the challenge was, you had to be back at uni 
generally before or during vintage. Um, and so like a lot of young winemakers in Australia, the, the first place you go and work is the Hunter Valley because the vintage is quite early. You can get vintage out of the way before you have to get back to university. So just about everybody you come across in the Australian wine industry has done at least one vintage in the Hunter. So I, um, I ended up in the Hunter, but it was I guess there was a pivotal moment at uni. We opened, um, and I, I told this story um, a few times, in that we opened, um, we had during, during the once a week, we had wine appreciation class, and they opened a, um, a 1984 Lovedale Semillon. And I was just awestruck by this wine. Um, this was in 1990, so it was a six-year-old wine. I, I just couldn't believe how fresh it was and how vibrant it was. And so my first application for a job ever was to Mount Pleasant in the Hunter Valley um, because I wanted to know how to make this wine. And, you know, I didn't get that job, but some 20 years later, if you like, I got that job and um, got to work with um, – you know, that great vineyard and, and, and you know, attempt to honour that wine that I saw at university that really caught my eye. Yeah, I mean, we have to talk about Mount Pleasant because it, it was a big time and, 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 well, I mean, McWilliams, you know, such a huge role that you had. Um, and, you know, from what I can see, you know, it really gained a lot of spotlight when you were, when you were working there. And what did your time um, for McWilliams teach you in that eight years? Um, I guess letting go. Um, a little bit because I'd, I'd um, always worked in for smaller companies and in smaller wine brands where as a winemaker, you can really control everything. You're sort of over absolutely every step of the way. And then for me, stepping from small company into a much larger company with, with four, four wineries right across the country, um, I had to let go. I had to um, really um, empower the, um, the team to make the right decision and um, let them go for it. And so for me, that was a big step um, in, in, I guess, my thinking as a, as a winemaker, but as a, in my career to actually let go of some of it and trust other people. And um, it's amazing what you can achieve once you do that. As long as you've got the right people around you, what you can actually achieve. And, you know, certainly um, some of the successes we have, you, you, you couldn't achieve on your own. Um, it was down to having a really good team. Yeah, that's wisdom that only comes with a lot of time and a lot of challenges over the years, isn't it? But what, I mean, was there ever, ever a time in your winemaking experience where there may be a bad vintage where you all thought it was a little bit too hard or, you know, you couldn't control the weather and, and, and you just found yourself thinking, this is just not for me? Um, well, recently I had that. Um, we, you'd be well aware that in 2019 um, we had all the bushfires down here in Tasmania. And, you know, for me that was, you know, I've, I've been around a while, so I've had some, some great vintages. I've had some terrible vintages. Um, but that was the first time I was faced with um, my vineyard and losing the crop in my vineyard. And, you know, that really took it out of me And um, because it was my, my prime source of um, income for our family at that stage too. And, and that really hit me. And I thought, well, there's nothing I can do. Just about every other thing I've, I'd sort of faced in my career to date, you could mitigate for. You can mitigate for for rain events um, and disease pressure and that sort of thing. But there's nothing you can do for a bushfire event and and um, being surrounded in smoke for sort of dense smoke for two weeks. There was nothing I could do in my whole, I guess, 
I guess, arsenal of experience to mitigate for that. So I just had to go, well, there's nothing I can do. I just have to accept it. So that was, that was a real challenge. And in the end, you end up making um, a little bit of Chatomania. How did that come about? Well, we made, I mean, Chatomania is um, n- now finished, but that was, that's a bit of a joint venture with an, an old mate of mine from McWilliams, Nicholas Crampton, and just a bit of fun to make a, a, a quite an accessible Tassie Pinot. But what we were really lucky and for, or fortunate probably um, in when the bushfires happened is that friends around the state called up and offered us some fruit and they were from places that didn't have the smoke impact. So that sort of kept us in the game, kept us going. It also gave us a real, I guess, sense of community in the industry we're in and, and hope. And that sort of, I guess, clicked me out of that funk and we got on with it and made wine, you know, and that also triggered something I'd, I'd been wanting to do, which I hadn't been able to do for a long, long time, is to go overseas and do harvest. And it sort of triggered us to, you know, take time out and we move over to France and, and made wine over there as well. So, you know, it's sort of a silver lining, if you like, in that situation that it's actually changed our business and um, I guess the way we see how we can make wine and and have our lifestyle. So it's actually... You know, in retrospect, it's probably a blessing, I'd have to say. Sounds like it. Tell me about your time over in France because I remember when you kind of picked up and took everyone and went over there and you're in Burgundy and Beaujolais, is that right? I don't mind talking. Yeah, yeah, a bit of both. Yeah, but based in based in Burgundy and, um, look, I hadn't been over. The last time I went over there to work was in 1996 and, you know, it just becomes harder and harder. I did it for a few years in a row but then – you know, you get more responsibility in life and in work and it becomes harder and harder to go and just pack up and move overseas and do harvest. You know, it becomes quite a selfish thing to do really. Um, but, you know, having a very small make um, of fruit from other growers, it just sort of meant we could get things put to bed um, quickly and easily and we took the kids out of school for three months and moved over there with, the, I guess, the idea of experiencing um um, making wine um, in a different culture, you know, and really fully experiencing it as a family, not just as a, a young kid, um, as a flying winemaker scenario. But, you know, it was a, re- a really interesting opportunity. And, you know, I didn't think there'd be any chance in hell of making our own wine over there. And it was actually Daisy who suggested it. She said, why don't we make see if we can make some wine in France? And I just went, no, nah, no chance. We're not going to be able to do that. But then we thought about it a bit more and um, – you know, through the help of Jane Eyre, who I went and worked with and helped for the harvest, she sort of made it happen. And she introduced me to her first ever grower when she first started making Burgundy wines, Jean-Michel from um, Savigny Le Bon, and um, met him. And yeah, there were some grapes available. So we just did it and didn't know what it would cost us, didn't know whether it'd be any good by the time we got it back here. But we've been surprised um, that the wine has been really well received. It's a tiny, tiny make, but we've done it again in 20, though more vicariously with COVID. And I've got plans to be over there again for this coming harvest. So, you know, fingers crossed that the world is open enough to do it and, you know, make it something that I do every year. And, you know, the I guess the cross to that is Jane um, just arrived in Australia and she will be over here in March to help me with my harvest and she's making a bit of Tassie Pinot here with me. I mean, you've always got quite a lot going on, whether you're making wine for yourself, you're making wine under somebody else's label, um, 
Do you ever get too much going on and think, oh, my God, I've, I've spread myself too thin? Um, I'd like to think no, but, yeah, it, it, it did hit me pretty hard with um, – <clears throat> when we first moved back down here, I'd sort of retained my role. So that was in 2017. I'd retained my role with McWilliams. And um, moving down here, I'd taken on the role as the group winemaker for Kreglinger, which had they had Norfolk Rise over in South Australia and Robe, and then they had Pipers Brook here in Tasmania. And But I still had my role with McWilliams, and then I had a few other customers, and then I was trying to do Chateau Wines and build Chateau Wines. Um, and there was a point where I was away from home so much um, and I, I remember a point, I, I arrived into an airport and turned my phone on, there was a message from Daisy and, you know, I called her back and she said, where are you? And I said, oh, I don't know. She said, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, oh, I'm at the airport. She said, where? And I said, I don't know. And I'd been in and out of Melbourne, Sydney and Perth so many times that week, I didn't know what airport I landed in. And I sort of looked around and I saw a juice bar next to a certain coffee shop and I went, ah, Melbourne airport, that's where I am. All I know is I'm going to gate five. And I thought, that's just crazy. And I got home that night and unpacked my bag and I did what I'd been doing for a whole year and not, not even noticing, I hung my um, bathroom bag, my sponge bag, up in my own bathroom. So I was treating my own house like a hotel. I always had a bag half packed and I wasn't even unpacking my toothbrush. And that sort of dawned on me, it, this is too much. And I'm really not. Um, if you like living, and I'll steal a quote from a mate of mine, um, Rodney Kemp up at Lakes Folly in the Hunter Valley. I'm really not living the lifestyle that the, well, the, the way he puts it is the wine industry um, promises a lifestyle that it seldom delivers. And I went, I'm, that's me. I'm, I'm in it, but I'm not getting the best out of it. And that's when I made the decision to slow things down. I, I, I scaled way back all my um, contract customers, my, my, my clients, including McWilliams, including Piper's Brook. And I continue to do a fair bit with McWilliams and I still do some work with Piper's Brook, but it's nothing like, you know, having the responsibility of their both companies' winemaking, you know, in, in full-time roles. It was kind of two full-time jobs and then trying to do chatter on the side. It was, it was nuts when I think about it. And, and I really, I was like, I was enjoying it because I'm a bit hyperactive in that sense, but something's got to give and you know what gives is you you're not there for your family um you're not there for your own wines you know and my own wines had always been second fiddle to my job and you know the difference now is basically all i do is chateau wines and you know so i get to spend the time and think about it and plan for it and rather than put that energy and enthusiasm and skill into someone else's brand i'm putting it into mine which is a nice place to be yeah, definitely. I mean, my heart rate's just gone up thinking about how much you were doing. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, now with Chateau, um, what is it on a, on a say, in a year, what are the most rewarding parts of your job and what's, what's the things that keep you going now in wine? Like what are those moments throughout the year that you really look forward to that give back to you? Well, I, I guess um, we're, we're now at that lucky point where we're making wine in our own small winery on our own small vineyard. And, um, you know, people are enjoying it. And, I, you know, it seems obvious, but, you know, I've been making wine for a long time and I assume people have been enjoying it. But the sort of feedback we get and the people that come and visit us now to talk to us about what we do and why we do it, 
that's really rewarding. Um, the other thing I'm really loving is I think um, we're getting now a lot of people wanting to come and help in harvest. So we usually take on one or two, or even three last year interns, and they come from all works. They're either young winemakers or they're sommeliers, even retailers. And what I'm learning from them, you know, they're come, like, I assume they're coming because they want to understand what I'm doing and learn from me. But you just learn so much from the questions you get asked and having to, I guess, articulate your thinking on why you're doing something. And it really, that sort of challenge is, you know, confronting, but also really rewarding. And, you know, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, I've heard quite a bit about uh, your little place down there from Pip Anderson. And she just says that you guys are some of the most welcoming and incredible people to spend time with down there. What was your dream for Chateau Label and what was your style for Pinot Noir? I mean, I drink a lot of Pinot Noir. It's one of the joys of my life. But what was your – What we're going into it. What kind of Pinot Noir did you want to make? Well, I just wanted to make a wine that people loved and a wine that I really looked like drinking. Um, I didn't have an idea on style and I still – I still – I sort of – I liked the – quality and the style of the Pinots I'd seen down here in the Huon and I'm a, I'm a firm believer, well, I guess when I was a younger winemaker, I really wanted to push style and imprint my idea on style onto wines. What I've learned and what I've, I guess, succumbed to is you can't do that. You know, you never achieve um, great wine doing that and so what I want to do down here is make a wine that's true to where it's from and true to the Huon Valley and, more importantly, true to our little site. And and that style will be what it will be. And, you know, that's sort of, I guess, the way I've headed um, ever since um, we first started taking fruit um, 10 years ago this year off, off our little vineyard that we planted. How rewarding. I mean, you've got white label Chateau now, you've got the black label, you've got seven inch. Are you going to be adding more uh, brands or more kind of um, offshoots to your label? Look, yeah, we've, I guess we only make Pinot. So it seems like we've got a lot of Pinots, but in the context of any wine brand, we've only got six or seven wines. And, you know, we're just exploring, you know, different vineyards. We've sort of outgrown our little vineyard as far as our, our customer base. Um, and I guess through the, the bushfire in 2019, we were forced to sort of go outside of our own farm and our customers like those wines. So we've sort of kept those going. And, you know, again, I said I'm a little bit uh, hyperactive with wine. I've tended to keep that going and we've got, you know, one new wine to release this year, which is more of a Huon regional wine that sits, I guess, between our white label, which is our Tassie blend, our Lutruida, and then our single vineyards. So it sort of sits there in the middle and it's a wine that's, you know, all about the Huon and, you know, what I love about, you know, Pinot Noir from the Huon. I love that because I think it's such a great uh, learning tool for lots of psalms to be able to talk about a region and, and wines that encapsulate a region and define them, especially for somewhere like Tassie where we still have that one GI that encapsulates all of Tassie um, and probably isn't going to change for a little while yet. So it's so great to kind of um, just have a spotlight in that. So I'm looking forward to trying that and, and with the team to just talk about what is the hue and offer as, a, as opposed to the Cold River or, or the Derwent Valley. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and I think I'm, I'm really keen to get back into the market. It's been two years now and, and show people the wines and talk about them because you can do it on Zoom or Skype, but it's not quite the same as being there and 
talking about the wines, telling the stories about the wines, what inspired you, what you love about it, what you don't like about it, but also seeing people's reactions and body language. You, you just can't get that any other way. So I'm busting to get back into the trade and I guess show what we do. That's so true. And you're right, body language. It's funny that you mentioned that because sometimes, um, especially on a restaurant floor, when you give somebody a wine, they don't always quite know how to um, describe it or react to it. But sometimes you just see like that sigh or that kind of shaking of the head or that closed eye moment where you're like, it says everything you need to know. And it's such a, um, a joy to watch people's reaction to when they try really great wine. Oh, look, and, and like in what you do, you must have to be so in tune to that. But I've learned I have to be as well. So, um, you know, it's a great skill. I mean, when you entertain at home, if you've got friends around and you cook dinner and you put out a wine, you pick up on that and you might change your plan. You might have decided I'm going to have this wine followed by that wine followed by that wine, but then the conversation or the body language, all of that, and you just go and grab something else from the cellar and put it in front of people because it feels feels like the right wine for the moment. Yes, absolutely. And so often do I pick out a wine which I particularly really want to try and in the end of the night it sits there and, and – yeah, you, you change and adapt and, and you're drinking something else you never thought and you're like, oh, that's just how the night went. That's a great thing. I want to touch briefly, if I can, um, just on um, your time in the show judging experience. I don't think on the pod we've ever talked about the wine judging experience of Australia and you've had so much um many years of incredible uh, show judging experience. What does that show system mean to Australia and can you explain a little bit about it? Yeah, so the the the, sh- the, sh- the show system um, was really born out of the agricultural societies, and a bit like with sheep, cattle, um, cheese, anything. It was really about getting an industry together to showcase, I guess, and find the best examples. And with that, you know, the old adage was improve the breed, if you like. Um, that's where the show system came from. It's kind of evolved these days, but in essence, it's pretty similar in that you, um, an industry, and in my case, the wine industry, um, submits um, samples of their wines and they're put in brackets to be to be judged and tasted blind by um, what the industry considers or what the show considers as, as people knowledgeable enough to make a decision about, I guess, ranking these wines against each other and on their own. Um, you know, look, it's something I've... Um, gotten so much out of as a young winemaker coming up through the ranks, if you like. Um, it's a, a great op- a way to hone your palate and I guess your discipline and focus. But probably the biggest thing it's done for the industry and for me is that exposure to other people that are passionate about wine, passionate about what they do, and you just learn so much. And it's not just about judging on the day on the table. It's about the wines you um, taste at dinner and the conversations you have. And, you know, I've sort of seen so many trends in, in my short 30 years in wine that um, start with conversations at wine shows and then, you know, six months later you see the wine bars, you know, converting in this direction and then, you know, maybe two years later the retailers catch up. But so much happens and so many great conversations about wine. And you, you, you sort of put a group of people, nerdy group of people, if you like, in the room, very focused on one topic, and it's amazing what comes out of it. So, you know, for me, it's been really rewarding of, uh, for, for my career and for the way I make wines, um, but also um, just that interaction and, and um, 
I guess, community you develop in your own industry, which is, you know, I think that's that's what the wine industry gives back. Oh, that's what the show system gives back to the wine industry, if you like. Yeah, and all this time with the tumultuous nature of the world lately, I feel that a lot of us have just realised how much we rely on those moments of coming together with like-minded people and and having those chats or whether it be over beers or it be over an ex- excellent bottle of wine. But um, the people, I've really missed that and uh, I'm taking every opportunity I can to get back into judging and do what I can because I really miss those moments. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I was, I was like, well, unlucky enough, I was my last year, last year chairing the um, Royal Queensland Wine Show and we got maybe 40% of the way through the judging and then they locked down Brisbane and we all ran, you know, you've never seen so many wine show judges run for the airport. We all ran for the hills and we never got to complete the wine show. So, um, you know, for the judges that sort of turned up, they've sort of sort of volunteered a week of their, their life to come to the wine show. And then several of us got caught for another two weeks isolation afterwards. But, you know, in my case, the wine show is not just about that week when you when you're on the committee or chairing the show. It's the whole year. It's the year ahead of the wine show. The wine show is the finish bit. It's the finish line. So it's um, you know it can be quite deflating to get to that point. So I actually and it was for me going to be my last wine show. I sort of figured it's you know time to hand over to the up and coming um, talent and judges. But I did um, end up doing the Hobart show with Jeremy Deneen, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I really enjoyed uh, after not doing it really for quite a long time, getting back in and just having those conversations and, you know, those little little um, jokes over a beer. But you learn something. You learn you learn about your own ideas on wine, you know, through other people's as well. So, yeah, I really miss that as well. Definitely. I could talk to Jeremy Benin about Riesling all day long. He's fascinating. <laughs> so what's, what's coming up for you, Jim? What are you excited about? You said you've got a new label to release. What's going to happen in the next couple of years for you? Well, um, we've just bottled, only just on Friday, completed um, bottling our 2021s. So those wines, the grower wines, come out onto the market on May 1 and then um, August 1 for our estate wines. So for me, it's I'm really busting to get back in across to the mainland and show people the wines and, you know, meet, meet the sommeliers, meet, meet anyone that's interested in our wine or wants to learn about it. Um, that's something I haven't done for quite a while, so I'm really itching to do that. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty exciting thing. We're also, for our little vineyard, um, this is our 10th vintage coming into that for our little vineyard. And, you know, when it doesn't, it's not a long time having, you know, worked at Mount Pleasant where I'm looking after vineyards that are 140 years old. Um, my vineyard being 15 years old is still very young. But, you know, when I had the idea to plant my own vineyard and came here every holiday um, for a couple of years, to, to plant it, it's hard to believe that we've now picked 10 vintages off our, well, we're about to pick our 10th vintage off our, our little farm, which is really exciting. So I've got an idea to maybe take all 10 vintages into the market and do some lunches and dinners with with trade and with our best customers and just, I guess, walk, well, we all walk through the tenth, the first decade of Chateau Wines. I love that. Literally, that was the question coming out of my mouth is what are you going to do and who's going to get to see those 10 vintages of your wine? That's fantastic. And I think... I'll, I'll, be, I'll be sure you're on the list. 
<laughs> so snide of me. But no, I was thinking, I hope you're putting some aside so that you can have that kind of retrospective and have a look at how things have changed and uh, how they're developing. Because even though your wines drink superbly on release, they really are built for age as well, I think. So um, really exciting stuff. It's just about trying to keep them um, in the building because they tend to fly out the door, which is a wonderful thing. Um, well, I've been very disciplined um, and I have kept museum stock. And because I've benefited from it, you know, in a situation like with Mount Pleasant, um, I've got to taste these wines from several decades, again, you know, even some of them going back to the to the 30s and stuff. Um, and I've had that benefit of learning from those wines. And so I've been very disciplined and as hard as it's been, and I do raid the museum, I'll have a sommelier that rings up and says, oh, I thought I had a case coming and, you know, I'll dig one out. But um, reluctantly, because I want to keep them for the future, for, for posterity, for, for whoever, you know, one day is farming this vineyard, whether it be one of my own kids or someone else, they need that reference, that library, and it's it's kind of a fast track to understanding how to how to get the best out of the site if you've got that. Absolutely, it is. I'm so glad that you're doing that. That's amazing, um, Jim. I ask everybody on the podcast if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? What have you got for me? Three beverages. Oh, I only need two, I reckon. Coffee. Oh. And champagne. <laughs> champagne. If I have to have three, if I have to have three. I'll do champagne both before and after. <laughs> I thought champagne might be the case. And have you got something particular in mind? Um, well, you know, as you, as you know, um, one of my favourite champagnes is Tattinger Comte de Champagne, the Blanc de Blanc. And it was actually, I'll, I'll call it my rider. I've got lots of friends in the music industry and they talk about their rider. So my rider with Mick Williams was Comte de Champagne as my staff allowance. Every, every year and since leaving there I've sort of missed that but luckily for me the new importer for Comte de Champagne is also my distributor in Australia so I can still get hold of it so I think that's that's kind of my go-to my touchstone champagne if you like an expensive one an expensive one not an everyday champagne but um, certainly my fa- my favourite. Um, the other one I've, I've sort of been drinking over this summer break because my distributor also has uh, Rotorua. And I really love that. Um, it was what they would have called their old NV back in the day. And I think they call it now 242. So uh, 242 years of making the wine. So the next release, 243 and so on. And that's delicious. The first release of it is um, delicious wine and great value. So... Yeah, we drink a bit of that in our house as well. Totally agree. I totally agree. Great champagne. I only had that the other day and I was like, holy moly, this is amazing. But comp, comp's on uh, a whole different level, I agree. I hope you got some of the 08 because that was a uh, hot property. And uh... Well, I do. I do and, I, and I, had the, I had a case of the 08 for the judges at the Brisbane Wine Show, but we never got to drink it because we shut the show down because of COVID. So the case came back with me. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know which way to look at that. Yeah, right. The show totally went on, didn't it? And you were like, no, get him out of here, quick. <laughs> don't want the champagne catching code. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. It's been such a pleasure and I really appreciate you making the time. I know you're busy and you've got lots going on, um, but I've been wanting to have you on for a long time and uh, you are just such a wealth of knowledge and uh, it's always a pleasure to hear more from you. So thank you so much. And I hope that we see you in trade soon. It's just been too long between drinks. Yes, please. And thank you so much for um, getting in touch. It's been nice to have a chat. Lovely. Thank you, Jim. See you soon. Kiss you. Take care. 
This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.